has brought a collection of books that I'm sure he will explain and talk more about later. Um, I did not buy them all while he was unpacking them, which is good. Uh, Scattered Seeds Ministry takes and collects uh, rare gems of books, and uh, they contain treasures of Christian knowledge and wisdom through the years. So I'd encourage you folks to take some time to hit those tables in the back. This will be an adventure. It's the first year trying to do something like this. And so anytime you have a question or a comment, you raise your hand like you're in school, and Seth or Ryan will pause and see what needs to be said. Uh, they're going to try to save some time for questions and answers uh, at the end and in between sessions. Um, there will be a first session this evening and then a break. Directly below us, there's a room about this size that's got some folding tables and some chairs and all kind of goodies set up for us to snack and have uh, light refreshments and stuff together and fellowship a little bit. And so we will pause in the middle and take a break and head down and uh, chat it up a little bit and then come back up for a closing session. That said, is there anything else that needs to be said? All right. Well, let's pray and then we will hand things over to Seth for this evening's first opening session. Almighty Creator, Father God, we thank you so much for calling us to this place, to your house, to worship you, and to fellowship with one another, and to hear your word spoken about our culture. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move and work in the lives of your people, your church today, that we would hear and understand what we are to do in this time and place, and that we would have a greater impact on the culture around us for the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray tonight. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joseph. All right. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. I'm excited to do this, as Joseph said, and most of you all from our church, but uh, this is something I want to do year after year and build upon. As you guys know who know me, I took the opportunity in seminary to pursue postmodernism, and as I've thought about it, I don't know what is greater punishment, that I, I did my thesis on postmodernism or whether I chose to do my thesis on postmodernism, I think the latter, but uh, it's kind of like nailing water to a wall, if you can imagine that. That's uh, a good illustration of postmodernism. But it's everywhere you want to be, as the Visa slogan says. It's uh, affected every fabric of our culture. And what led me to look at it first time was uh, I didn't have an answer for it, and I didn't know how to combat it. I could see some of the doctrinal issues involved, um, but I understood also it's more than a doctrinal issue. There was a philosophical underpinning. I had no clue what it was about. And so I have a conviction personally as a, as a pastor shepherd to equip my people to be able to stand and to understand the times we live in. And so that's kind of the motivation behind this, um, this conference is the motivation we're going to do at my brother's church, which I'm really excited for you all to get to, to see and hear him. Tonight, I hope you're, you're going to brace yourself. We're going to do, it's a historical survey of what postmodernism is. So we're going to cover some ground, as one gentleman said. And it's not all easy stuff. But by the end of this presentation, this seminar, you will be able, I believe, to see within the culture some of these postmodern pillars and be able to identify it very easily. And so hang in there work and walk through it with me. You're going to be okay. We'll get through it. And it will really set up the next three sessions that we're going to look at. So this one is really important. All right. 
So everyone ready? So to understand postmodernism, we really we don't know what's post about postmodernism until we look at modernism. And so all these terms are familiar terms to us, but modernism is briefly characterized as the time period where, where man tried to ground objectivity in reason and in science or empiricism. It was that time period of, of the Renaissance. Uh, it was characterized, as you see up there, by rationalism, rationalism being the primary aspect of modernism. If you don't know what rationalism is, it's, uh, it's the attempt to ground all truth using reason alone. There's a lot of problems with rationalism, but you don't discount reason altogether. We're rational beings. You don't ground truth on rationalism, but you investigate truth on rationalism. Nonetheless, they sought to ground it all on rationalism. It also rejected foundations laid by previous generations. So theologians, philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, the metaphysics they were involved in, all out the window pretty much. Reason establishes truth and provides assurance and security for practices and beliefs. Now the disciplines that they rejected was, was pretty wholesale disciplines in modernism. Um, science, epistemology, philosophy, ethics, all were reformed during that modern period by rationalist thinkers. Father of rationalism, Rene Descartes. And I know you want to say Descartes, but it's Rene Descartes. Everyone try and say that with me real quick, Rene Descartes. All right. He is considered the father of modern uh, modernism and rationalism. He sought to find a foundation upon which knowledge could be absolutely certain. And to do this, he determined to doubt everything that could be doubted. So if you've ever studied Descartes, he systematically doubted every single thing he could, even his, his body, his eyes, uh, his flesh, um, shapes, sounds, everything he doubted um, until he could find the one thing that he couldn't doubt. And when he found that one thing, this is what it was, to think. That is it. It's thought. This alone cannot be detached from me. I am. I exist. That much is certain. And then came his famous statement, cogito ergo sum, or I think, therefore, I am. So that's who that statement comes from, Rene Descartes. What happened with that statement is the certainty that Descartes had was, was uh, of the thought, not of the thing. And so there's these things in reality that we don't really know. What, what we actually know is the thought of that thing. And what Descartes knew was not the thing itself, but his idea. Uh, the founder of my seminary, Norman Geisler, humorously quipped, Descartes literally put Descartes before de horse. I like that. I think, therefore I am. It should be I am, therefore I think. We exist, and because we exist, we think. And this has created innumerable problems, not only in theology, but in the society as a whole. What's, what's followed from that one statement. So when you hear that ideas aren't really that powerful, this proves that wrong. This has changed the course of history. Um, the takeaway from Descartes at the core is, is really at the core of postmodernism's rejection of foundations of knowledge. It's what led postmodernists to understand the problem of reality, and this problem in mess we're in is a hermeneutical or interpretive linguistic problem. And so, along comes another man following Descartes named Immanuel Kant. You've probably heard that name. He tried to avoid Descartes' error 
while still wanting to establish objectivity. How is it that we objectively know reality? How is it that what we see, what we experience, what we say we know is really the way things are? He solved Descartes' problem, and so he, he came up with a very sophisticated argument. It's very difficult for me to read him, actually. Um, it's difficult for anybody to read, but he came up with, with this idea where he challenged this idea that our cognition, our reason, uh, conforms to objects. And he, he switched the argument around. He reversed it by asking, what if objects conform to our cognition, our reason? And what he did changed the course of thought. Um, again, Geisler said he was like the kid who peed in the pool and forced everyone else to get out and never get back in again. Another graphic illustration, but it's definitely true. There's not a thing in society that hasn't been affected by Kant. Because in his attempt to ground objectivity and the things we know, uncertainty, what he actually created was an inescapable agnosticism. What, uh, this is the sophisticated language of it. I'm going to show you a picture next slide that's going to make it all make sense. So Kant posited that there were a priori categories of the mind, those three specifically, space, time, and causality. So these categories, space, time, and causality, change the raw experiences we have so that the raw experience in, in reality kind of goes through, as this quote says here, uh, the coin machine brain, right? If, you, if you, you guys work in the banks, you'll know that. You throw the change in and, and pennies and nickels and dimes are all separated. Well, that's these categories of the brain sort out the empirical data and, and shove it through these categories. Here's a helpful illustration. Think of that Play-Doh press, right? There's the raw Play-Doh. You put it in the press and there's all these different shapes that it could come out to. That's what the mind does to the sense experience. So the thing in and of itself, the Play-Doh, goes through the mind and it's changed forever. You never actually know reality in and of itself because your mind changes it. So what that created for mankind was this gulf, if you will, this, this separation from thing and the idea. And you can never know reality. You see the problem? Well, that affects every institution known to man, especially claims about God. So we are left with Kant's philosophy with an inescapable agnosticism. It's a huge problem. In fact, the church, this is, this is a seminar I'd like to do again. Um, a lot of reformed apologetics uncritically accept Kant's argument. If, you, if you've ever studied presuppositional apologetics, for instance, this is what they use. You're just left with, you have to presuppose the truth of God in order to prove it. But there's the legitimate counter. If you have to presuppose it, then it doesn't necessarily exist. This is where a lot of atheists in our society is at. So if the mind takes the raw data of sense experience and conforms it to the categories of rational thought, then the knower can never truly know the sensible object in and of itself, since it's changed from its original state and conformed to the categories of the thought. So Rene Descartes and Immanuel Kant were two philosophers that really changed the course of history with, those, uh, with their philosophies, but also a scientist who you've heard of, Isaac Newton, who was a Christian and an awesome scientist. His uh, discovery of gravity changed physics forever. Um, 
And, and what Newton demonstrated through his physics was how the law of gravitation could explain diverse phenomena ranging from the tides to the irregularities of the moon's motion. It made possible a mathematical principle unrealized at the time of the workings of a dynamic universe. And if you've, again, if you've never studied this part of history, Newtonian physics transformed the world. All of a sudden, the world could be explained by natural laws. He discovered something great. And it actually points to creators, a great argument for God, is that the reason we see law-like things in the universe is because we have a law-giving God. And it follows his dictates. So Newtonian physics is, is wonderful. Um, specifically, geometry and mathematics was the guide from without to solve the problems from within. So what that means is that Newton saw the problems of philosophy and he said, no, you don't start with philosophy. We need to start with nature and that will check our philosophy or keep it in check. It's the, it's the guide from outside to solve the problems inside. So because of this, phenomena of nature could philosophically be described with precision because of the ge geometric principles he discovered. Here's uh, William F. Lawhead, a really good historian. I, I like reading him what he said of Newtonian science. He said, after Newton, it was absolutely clear that there are no special sacred spaces in the physical realm. The heavens and the earth are made of the same materials and follow the same laws. The universe became increasingly less mysterious and more open to human understanding, prediction, and even control. Adding that where Robert Boyle had mused that the universe was like a great clock, Newtonian physics had given mathematical substance to that image. He said, yeah, it very much is. It can be predicted of what will happen. So Newtonian physics was huge. However, in following Newtonian physics, scientists began furiously to try and describe and investigate nature with these, these new understandings. Until one very famous scientist came along, Einstein, and his special theory of relativity gave rise to, you've heard of these big words, quantum theory. In other words, Einstein's theory of relativity started poking holes through Newtonian physics and said, you know what? It doesn't quite describe all of reality as we know it. It describes things on the grand scale, but when you get to a subatomic particle level, it doesn't follow Newtonian laws. So once again, just like Descartes, just like Kant, all these boastful claims that, hey, we figured it out, we've grounded objectivity, Einstein says, not quite. There's, there's still reality about the universe we can't explain, and this doesn't touch it. So when this happened, when Einstein's theory came along and, and again, had another scientific revolution, this was the straw that broke the camel's back in many postmoderns postmodernist minds of these claims that we keep coming up with of we've, we've got certainty, we know objectively these things are true when they, they're looking at these historical things happening saying but we don't so you see the problem great men brilliant men made very beneficial discoveries and yet objective truth still seems to elude us. So here we're going to start. That's, that's kind of an overview of modernism. Those three guys, there's a, many, many more to it. But those three really were key players during the modern era. 
But after that happened with Einstein, a, a man named Ludwig Wittgenstein uh, came along. And he's credited with making the first postmodern declaration, even though when he was writing, uh, postmodernism wasn't even a thought or a term yet. Um, he coined the phrase language games, if you've heard of that. And this is really where, for our purposes, it's, uh, I want you to focus in. To understand what postmodernism is, they view everything as a linguistic issue. So his conception of language is that language is complex, it's flexible, it's pragmatic. Words are likened to tools, and their uses are said to be as various as the tools are various. And so what Wittgenstein said in a language game, let me read this to you. He conceived of the practice and use of languages needing to be understood in the context or behavioral pattern in which it's learned. In other words, for those of you who've ever had children, like my wife and I have four young kids, when they're learning, we, we'll get an object, we'll get, we'll get a ball. My son Nick is enthralled with balls right now. And we'll say, ball. And what's Nick supposed to repeat? Ball, right? That's a game by which you're teaching him. So that's, that's basically what Wittgenstein's saying, is, is these language games, that's, that's how we learn. They're tools to teach. So in the practice of the use of language, one party calls out the word, the other acts on them. In instruction, in the language, the following process occurs, like I just described. People will identify an object. Oh, that's what we say that is. Okay. Well, so far, so good. Nothing wrong with that. But what he concluded is that there's no ultimate nature to a thing. It's just kind of relative. It's just up to us what we say. That's a bit bigger issue, right? If I, if I want to make the case that language is relative, I can make it by saying, well, that's a horse. And someone who speaks Spanish might say, no, es caballo, esta caballo. No, it's a horse. We're saying the same thing, just using a different word. But what Wittgenstein's saying is, that's a horse, and we understand, okay, it's caballo horse, it's horseness, whatever that is. There's a nature to that thing that differentiates it from an elephant, for instance. We don't look at an elephant and say horse because it's different than a horse. Well, what Wittgenstein said is there's no such thing as nature. It's just all relative. Language is just a tool. There's nothing behind it. So it kind of gets a little more complex with some of the issues involved. He picked up on some stuff that, in fact, we understand as a game. Language is a game. In English, we teach them. Chinese, they teach. Spanish, they teach differently. But there's a nature behind it, we believe. Postmodernists do away with the nature of the thing and see language is all relative. So it's relative to each particular game. And now you can understand, this is kind of a fun experiment to do. Language can actually vary even from family to family. One family has a certain way that they say things, right? And it's kind of fun. It's unique to them. So he picked up on that. It's relative to each particular game. The rules of each game differs from culture to culture, even family to family. Consequently, language is pluralistic. Well, I don't really have any problems with any of that except for the fact that he doesn't believe there's a nature to the things we're talking about. The primary way human beings know and participate in their world is through language. That's true. 
Different linguistic maps bring different senses of reality and claims to truth. That's also true. Linguistic maps do vary from culture to culture, and they do offer up different claims to truth. But there's still the bigger problem. Are they all true? Or does it even matter? Are none of them true? This is where postmodernism really begins to challenge the very fabric of reality for us and our understanding of reality. Let me read this quote from these uh, two authors I used in my thesis, and they really helped me understand this. The linguistic term from Wittgenstein, they said, is an explicit realization that, one, the primary way human beings know and participate in the world is through language, and two, different linguistic maps being different senses of reality and claims to truth. What followed then was these two men, Pierce and Dewey, who were pragmatists, who showed that truth claims of any kind are embedded in distinct linguistic conventions and communities. And then we get ushered in this transitional period, beginning really in the 50s, coming to light in the 60s with the sexual revolution, this transitional period where the post is added to modern. And there's three points that we're going to consider for the rest of this presentation on what postmodernism is. One, it's a transition from a realist view of reality, and, and all that means is uh, of my realist view of truth is that statements correspond to reality. They view truth as a construction, not a correspondence. Second is a loss of a meta-narrative, and that's actually, I'm gonna do that one last, even though it's number two on their list. That's gonna be the important one for us. And the advent of local stories. And third, above all, chastened rationality entails a rejection. Epistemological foundation, I'm gonna explain that. We're gonna cover that one first. So what is epistemological foundations? Well, epistemology is just the theory of knowledge, the theory of how we know things. And it's really something a lot of academians study but, uh, but it's, in my opinion, it's important. So what's the rejection? Postmodernism completely rejects Enlightenment epistemology, which came from Descartes' statement, I think, therefore I am. Descartes' statement makes man essentially a thinking substance, and it divorces him from his situatedness in nature. In other words, every single one of us are situated contextually somewhere at a certain time in history. How many of you are from Clovis, New Mexico? Okay, pretty good amount. So your view of reality probably differs from how someone from New York, New York views reality. Small town, big city, right? We're affected by the situatedness we've grown up in. Postmodernism recognizes that. It's true. What they're saying is that Descartes kind of says so that none of that matters. All we really are is just a thinking substance. None of our situatedness affects us. They say, yeah, it does. I don't have a problem with that, actually, that point, actually. So it changes from culture to culture. It would change from New York to Beijing. Those cultures are drastically different. And as many different cultures and cities as there are, that's how many different realities postmodernists say there is. 
Modernism's claim that man can be completely objective is at the core of their rejection. Rather, they say, our historical situatedness, our culture, our language, all form presuppositions, pre-understanding, and a certain perspective within the individual. Again, this is true. By the way, I'll say this now. I was talking to a college kid at our church the other day, and he says, well, it kind of sounds like you're not very favorable with postmodernism. I said, I'm not. But I'll, I need to say this. As they criticize some of this stuff, I actually agree with their criticisms. However, the solutions they put in place are worse than what they're criticizing. And that's the problem, okay? So every one of us finds ourselves in a certain situatedness, a certain culture, a certain language that affects you and how you view reality. Fair enough. The second thing that they really challenge a Christian worldview on is that they reject a correspondence view of truth, which asserts that our knowledge of things corresponds to reality. The language may change, caballo, horse, but there's the nature to that animal that we all universally recognize as a horse. That's a, co that's a correspondence view of truth. They reject that. They say a, co a coherence view of truth Coherence basically is, doesn't make sense. Um, asserts that beliefs are true so long as they fit coherently into a system of other held beliefs as a whole. Now I wanted to say this. Um, when you're doing Christian worldview stuff, unfortunately a lot of pastors will evaluate truth claims on whether it makes sense or not. And that's a coherence view of truth. That's not the definition of truth. By very definition, lies can be coherent. This, we see this every day in the court system, right? They can put together a whole string of lies to make this coherent story, but by its very definition, it's false. So coherence is a test for truth, but it's not the definition for truth. Truth will make sense, but it doesn't say what truth actually is. So this is where we break from many postmodernists, even postmodern uh, theologians. William James, you may have heard his name, his famous pragmatist said, truth for us is simply a collective name for verification processes, just as health, wealth, strength, etc., are names for other processes connected with life, and also pursued because it pays to pursue them. So there's, there's an end to it, right? Truth is made get that? Truth is made just as health, wealth, and strength are made in the course of experience. It's constructive. Truth is constructed to serve some pragmatic end or goal. Now, this will be super important. I don't know about my brother's lessons, but when I teach tomorrow night on law, this is actually how people view law. It's just a pragmatic end. There's no right or wrong. There's no sense of justice. It just serves a purpose, and that purpose is determined by the ruling class. So it's a radical break from a Christian understanding of truth. Truth is not made. It's discovered, um, and it's, it's revealed by God himself. So as with the coherence view of truth, the pragmatic view of truth, such as James just said, 
falls apart in a Christian worldview. Pragmatism is a test for truth. Truth does work, but so do lies. Again, it's not a definition of truth. It's a test for truth. So here's a quote, and this is by a Christian, quote-unquote Christian author. Um, the postmodern claim, he says, together, and this is a difficult quote, so I've got actually an easy picture coming up. So bear with me. Together with non-linguistic modalities, such as metaphorical images and symbols, language, which we inherit from our social community, provides the conceptual tools through which we construct the world we inhabit. Well, what does he mean by that? This will make sense. Anybody ever seen The Little Mermaid? Okay, good. I've got three little girls, so I can't help but see The Little Mermaid. There's a point at the beginning of the movie where Scuttles the bird there has brought some objects by um, Ariel. And what he's holding at the top picture there is a fork, which he calls a dingle hopper. And the purpose of the dingle hopper, he says, is to style your hair, which he demonstrates in the middle pictures. And Ariel, being the princess she is, holds on to that dingle hopper. Oh, how beautiful. Now we kind of laugh at that example. But what he's pointing out, and what this show is pointing out, is there's no such, there's no inherent nature to the fork itself. It's just a tool. One person looks at it and says, you eat with it. Another person says, oh, you style your hair with it. See the problem? That's the postmodern claim about language and things. There's no inherent nature to the thing. It's just utility. So here he continues. The thing, the strangely shaped piece of metal, even when we find it sitting on the table right in front of us, is subject to interpretation. Given our horizons of experience, our past history, what we've been told, and thus a whole host of presuppositions that we bring to the experience, we immediately see the object as a fork. But for Ariel, with her different history, her different experience, and thus different presuppositions, the item is interpreted as a dingle hopper. And the next time she sees one, she's in the company of the prince and starts beautifying herself with it. Comical part of the movie. But that's the postmodern argument. Does that help you understand it a little bit? Now they apply this argument on much deeper levels than a fork. They apply it to truth. They apply it to God. They apply it to every institute of our society. So you can see the problem that's formed. <laughs> how do we get past that? So, so far, how can we summarize postmodernist view of knowledge, our knowledge of things, our knowledge of the world? Postmodernists view all explanations of reality as constructions that are useful, but not objectively true. Secondly, they deny that we have the ability to step outside our constructions of reality. What that means is that we can't step outside of our construction of reality and say, oh, that view of reality is wrong. So you see what they've done to a Christian claim to truth. We can't go to China, for instance, and tell them that their view of God or gods is wrong. They've got their construction, we've got our constructions, and neither one of us can get above it all to say, oh, we're right and, and they're wrong, or they're right and we're wrong. We're all trapped inside our own little bubbles, our own little constructs. So whatever community one finds himself in, the reality of that community is a construction. And that construction follows established rules. That comes from Wittgenstein's language games. And those rules are set up by that community. So Spanish people say caballo, English people say horse. That's a rule. 
Members of a community build explanations of reality into that construction on the basis of its usefulness, not on whether it's true or not. That's the pragmatic side. So far so good, clear as mud. So along comes this man, philosopher of science named Thomas Kuhn. How many of you when doing worldview stuff have heard of paradigms or used that word? Everyone has a paradigm. Here's the man it came from. It's become synonymous with the term worldview. Even Christian theologians use this paradigm language to talk about worldviews. We all interpret, uh, you've heard the illustration, we all interpret the world through rose-colored glasses, right? And it colors how you view. That's very postmodern, by the way. I don't use that illustration when I do worldview stuff. Um, even though I believe we've been affected by our presuppositions, all that stuff, I believe there's something that does override all that. Anyway, so he's writing to scientists and how scientists, any, any of you do science or have practiced science before? So biology has its own set of rules compared to a physicist, right? Um, a, a practicing surgeon doesn't use the same rules necessarily um, as one diagnosing a cold. There's various disciplines, even in the sciences. And so he's talking to scientists who, who operate in their field, and those, those separate fields all have their own language, own rules, and the way science progresses is, is they come to a point where they see their rules aren't adequate to explain the things they're dealing with. And this, this transformation happens until a new established order happens. And in, in a sense, that is how science progresses. That's the inductive way. Um, that's what we saw with Einstein and Newton, for instance. So, I love how Ravi Zacharias, anybody a fan of Ravi? I love Ravi. Ravi Zacharias, I was listening to him one time, was challenged by a professor on one of these campuses he was teaching at. And this professor was really upset with Ravi being from India, which is very um, pluralistic with their worship and everything else. And, um, he challenged Ravi, saying, you know, above all people, you should know that what you're saying is false, because Ravi definitely holds to uh, definite truth, objective reality. I mean, he's a master of Christian apologetics. And he just let this professor go on and chew him out and chew him out how Ravi, being from India, should know better. And, and when the professor finishes, he said something like this to the professor, very simply. He said, yes, but even in India, we look both ways before crossing the street. And what he's saying is, there might be this theory of a theory of everything and everyone's got their own perspective, but there's some ultimate realities that everyone adheres to. <laughs> Even in India, we look both ways before we cross the street, because if we don't, we'll feel the full force of that reality hit us. So Kuhn, um, I threw this in here because Kuhn's paradigms have really dominated Christian worldview apologetics, and I don't think it's a healthy way to talk about it, personally. Um, that's for another seminar. Maybe that could be one of your questions later. So we're going to move to the, more the end of our, our look now, and I wanted to spend the most time on this man, um, Jean-Francois Leotard, I think is how you say it. The loss of meta-narratives. So he's really the one who came up with the first um, postmodern declaration as, as truly being a postmodernist. He uses the term modern to designate any science that legitimates itself with reference to a meta-discourse, making an explicit appeal to some grand 
narrative. What is that talking about? What is a meta discourse in a grand narrative? Well, here's a good example you'll be very familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's a meta narrative. What's it claiming? God loved everyone. Well if, well, if this man's correct, we can't say God loved the world because we don't really have a world perspective. We have my community perspective. That brings it down home for us, right? If, if he's right, we as Christians really have no message to offer the world, only people who adhere to our own community. So he defines postmodernism as this, incredulity toward meta-narratives. He hates claims that claim meta-truths. Only local, personal truth counts. Pretty strong claim. This incredulity is a direct result of the progress of the sciences. Now he's got a point here, right? I gave, this is why I gave you the history of science and, and modernism. Descartes believed he found objectivity. He didn't. Kant believed he'd found objectivity. He didn't. Newton believed his theory found objectivity. Well, he didn't. And so he believes the history of thought and science has actually proven his point. It's the direct result of the progress of the sciences. If anything, philosophy and science has shown us we don't know objective truth objectively. And it's impossible to. That's what he says. The sciences themselves have overthrown the idea of a theory of everything. So, this is a challenge for the church. What it, essentially, I'll say this here. Postmodernism essentially reduces the church down to just a social institution that affects you with everyday life. It can be a social program. I mean, that's all we're really good for. The truths we hold to, the stories we have, if people want to join our little community and believe it, great, it works for you, but you know what? Outside of our walls here at this church, it doesn't mean anything else to anybody else. That's a big deal. So he goes on to claim, the objects and the thoughts that originate in scientific knowledge convey with them one of the rules which supports their possibility. The rule that there is no reality unless testified by a consensus between partners over certain knowledge and certain commitments. Science is one community. Churches are one community. Banks are one community. The military is one community. A family might be one community. You see how this goes on and on. So in theology, I'll apply it to church. People who have have a theological bent will congregate together and we all agree, agree on these rules and things that we're going to believe and that's fine for us that's pragmatic that's our community truth and that's our story we all agree to it but don't expect someone out there to necessarily agree to our rules and our game and our truth it works for us but it doesn't work for them it's okay that's basically what he's saying there's no reality unless testified by a consensus between partners. Truth and reality are pragmatic, determined by a particular group, culture, society, to serve their purpose, whatever that purpose might be. Science itself is not grounded on universal objective truth. It's a narrative, and that a person is made legitimate by joining the community in narrative, not by proving one's assertions. 
So when you join a community of faith, for instance, you're now a believer. You've joined the community. That's what he's saying. You see how this is working? Flows pretty well into our modern culture. Every group within a society has its teachers, its authorities. What do churches do? We're right in the process at Waypoint of establishing elders and deacons. We choose our leaders, right? And they're, they're the ones who legitimize our story, our statement of faith, all that stuff. That's great, postmodernist says. We don't want to intrude on your group. But we're not there and we have our own authorities. And you can't speak into our group because you don't abide by our rules, our language. So in summary, using logical arguments against others' views is to argue from inside your view. But this is not the only paradigm by which we view reality. How many times do you hear that, right? It's not the only way to view reality. This is why, by the way, a secular postmodern culture hates missionaries. Because missionaries go to different cultures, and in a postmodern's mind, they go to those different cultures and destroy their story, which is what we need to be upholding. No one person or community can speak meta-narratives about anything, including the church. Our truth is not a meta-narrative. It's, it's a local story that we all agree to. Truth is relative to a culture and is pluralistic since there are many cultures. Descartes' contention that man being a thinking substance can somehow separate himself from his own historical situatedness or place in history, his own presuppositions, his own perspectives, his own pre-understanding language, and his overall cultural conditioning in order to gain access to a universal absolute viewpoint is misguided. No one, they claim, has a universal viewpoint to make meta truths. So postmodern thinkers insist that no one can escape these things. Instead, we need to re-examine our knowledge from within man's own historical situatedness, his presuppositions, his language. It's impossible and not necessary to try and find the beginning of knowledge because knowledge is a product of discourse in any given community. So community comes together and they begin speaking their own story and that's what counts as knowledge. It doesn't matter if it corresponds to reality or not. They're constructing it through the stories they tell. That's their reality. That's what a postmodernist argues. So this is why we see today in our culture a celebration of diversity. To connect the dots for you. You see this all the time in the news. Celebrate diversity. Why? Because the more cultures and groups that we listen to, the more we learn and grow ourselves. There's an element of truth to that, but there's some aspects of cultures that's just wrong, <laughs> as a Christian would, would claim at least. Okay. So, we're getting close. So they reject a correspondence view of truth, since we don't really know reality. And by the way, remember I talked about Descartes and Kant and how they created this separation from the thing known and the thing itself. It left us with an agnostic, an inescapable agnosticism. They actually, they, they agree with that. The problem in my thesis is what I did is I said, you know, I agree with postmodernism that Descartes can't leave us in agnosticism. A postmodernist just says, oh well. I said, well, we need to we need to re-examine Descartes and Kant. That's the problem. We need to evaluate what they did. They don't do that. 
They just accept the conclusion and say, see, objectivity is impossible. So they adopt two alternative views of truth, a coherence and a pragmatic view of truth. Coherence, what makes sense to a community, and what end or purpose does that truth serve that community? You, the popular phrase, hey, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> That's that point. So through coherence and pragmatics, we construct truth. Here's a contrast, okay, or, or a summary of those two. Uh, the coherentists argue that beliefs are true so long as they fit coherently into a system of other held beliefs as a whole, and pragmatism says truth for us is simply a collective name for verification processes. It is what is coherent and what works. And then Leotard argued that science itself, itself has shown the impossibility of a meta-narrative, a grand meaning to all things. Science itself is one story among many by the fact of the community and the narration of its story, not by proving itself in any absolute way. Priority for a postmodernist is given to the community and its story. Ryan's going to talk a lot about this. We talked on the phone a lot about this, but this is why you hear so much in a postmodern society. Hey, what's your story? Right? When we do Bible study, what do we tend to revert to? Hey, what's this mean to you? This is all very postmodern. It's how postmodern has influenced the church, and we don't know it. It's opposed to any meta-narrative that one particular community may try to claim over another. You, this is why in our society, when you go out into the street and with authority, with conviction, proclaim the gospel and say it applies to everyone universally, this is when you see the clause come out. And now you see why. They think that is the most arrogant thing in the world. How can you claim a theory of everything for every person when you yourself are stuck in your little bubble. The history of science, he contends, has caused an incredulity toward meta-narratives. So what are we left with? No real knowledge of things, no objective truth that corresponds to any ultimate reality, and no way to speak authoritatively or objectively about anything. That's what postmodernism leaves us with. That's scary. Because essentially, all we, all we can do is meet together if we agree to meet together. And, and if you agree to abide by our rules and what we say is true, then great, come fellowship with us. If not, no big deal. Go your way and do whatever you want, think whatever you want, live life however you want. We really can't have authority about anything, say anything authoritatively or absolutely. That's a scary summary. But I trust that you guys are perceptive enough to see in reality that's where we're at. And that's why our postmodern society gets so angry when the church makes definite and absolute truth claims. All right? So there's, <clears throat> as quickly as I could and as painlessly as I could, introduce you to a quick history of modernism and postmodernism. We're going to take a break now. I'll let Joseph come up, actually. And, uh, and then Ryan's going to teach the next session on um, authority, postmodernism and authority. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you, Seth. That was a lot of information really fast. <laughs> um, you all already have a little bit glazed look going on. Um, some thoughts while you were talking. 
and I don't want to add to and take us off somewhere. I know you and Ryan have a lot of other stuff planned. Um, two big counterpoints as God's people, the church, to all of this stuff. Number one is that modernism and postmodernism both try to explain everything as people. And what they've discovered and proven absolutely is that we are insufficient in and of ourselves. As Christians, we believe in something called divine revelation. And that ultimate truth exists in God and is understood because he has chosen to bless us with it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith we know that God created the world. It isn't because of empiricism or because of language or because we've agreed together as a community. It's because the God who made it all told us it's true. And so I know that that's where you're going. I know that that's where you're going to end up. I know that that's where we're headed. But I also know that sitting here for the last hour, I'm going, oh my goodness, words don't mean, people are mean, I'm hungry, let's go eat a snack. So with that, um, does anybody have any questions or comments for Seth before we break?